1: Welcome to out of the comfort zone. No doubt your organization has a diversity and inclusion effort and it may go by any number of acronyms like DEI, IED, DEIB and there's a bunch of variations on the theme. But today is not focused on the acronyms. Today is focused on what do you actually need to understand as a leader of a team and of an organization? And more importantly, what do you need to do to ensure that you have a team that has diverse points of view? that values those differences, and that creates an inclusive culture where everyone has a fair shot and an equal voice. And importantly, beyond just your team, what does your organization need to be doing? So my guest today is Dr. Gina Cox, and I think in some ways Gina may be best suited to this conversation of anybody I've had on the show. She's an organizational psychologist, executive coach, and a speaker known for her nuanced insights, and I will add her very warm personality and style. She advises um, leaders on influence and impact, career strategy, and inclusion. She's the author of a new book called Leading Inclusively, which is an award-winning book that shows how to counter the typical disappointing outcomes from diversity, equity, and inclusion. Gina's held a number of internal corporate roles and some external leadership roles, specialist in organizational consulting, talent assessment, selection, and acquisition published in a variety of places like Harvard Business Review, Fortune, Fast Company, and Forbes, and she holds a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology and is a professionally certified coach. And Gina, with pleasure, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm delighted to be here with you today, Wanda. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, I want to start in a slightly different way than I usually do, and that's with your story. And it's not a typical story for someone who's spent their professional life working in the United States and would be classified, I guess, by many terms as African-American. But that's not really your story. So tell us about your background just a little bit. Well, thank you for that
2: opportunity, although I will add one qualifier right at the beginning. When a person of color shows up in the United States, you're going to get classified as Black or African-American if you appear to be of African descent. So I am Black slash African-American for sure. Um, But, you know, I was born in England. My parents were of that generation, like many from the colonies who went to England in the 1950s as England was rebuilding after the the Blitz. Literally, there was a shortage of manpower, and I thought it was very clever that England decided what What if we went to the colonies and invited people who we could then train for all the specific jobs we needed to have done. So I was born there, but I spent most of my formative years in the Caribbean, which is where my parents had come from um, and they had met in England. And in that place was in Barbados. So that perspective of having that very heavy colonial influence, because Barbados is called Little England, and that's not a coincidence, um, Is really important to my story because I had a certain point of view that was influenced by that long history of of, from England, but also the Caribbean perspective, and then I came to the United States um, when I was about twenty years old and. I like to say that coming to the United States felt like, like a natural experiment because I was old enough that I had this clear sense of who I thought I was and, and what people thought of me and so on. But when I got here, I recognized right away, aha, you're sort of like an avatar of a Black woman, you know, because people were reacting to me in ways that were new to me. And so I had to figure out what that meant. Ultimately, I think what it meant or what I learned to do was to understand what it was that people were seeing when they saw me, which was sort of very much influenced by American history. So I had to understand that, and then I had to understand, well, how do I react to it in a way that would work to my advantage? So you, I very quickly learned how to learn the customs and norms and so on. And the last thing I'll say about this so that you have a chance to you know follow up is that that perspective is really important because what it has done, good or bad, is it put me in a situation where for decades now, I have been sort of observing from above, observing myself and the people around me from above in a way, because it still feels like I'm learning and finding out things that I have to figure out to, you know, adjust to. And so it's it's a lot of fun for me, but it is also the basis for my very clear perception of what the experience is of a person who looks like me, especially in, in work life.
1: Okay. All right. So born in the UK, most of your formative years in Barbados. Yes. You come to the US, I think around age 20. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you do college in the US or did you do college somewhere else? I did college in the United States for okay. sure. All right. So college in the United States, and then suddenly you're employed or looking for jobs in the United States and getting all these reactions to you and expectations of you. Mm-hmm. That is based on American history and American culture. And I also love the fact that we identify you as an African-American when indeed there may be African heritage somewhere along the line, but that isn't exactly the identification because the island culture is much more of an identification and it's different as well. All right. So tell us about, I want to know about those observations. Like what were people assuming of you or attributing to you that you found as a surprise? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, they were the funny ones. Like, do you spend every day smoking marijuana and eating bananas? <laughs> like those kinds of things, which were just funny. And you know, there was an opportunity to educate because I I realized truly people did not know, and every idea they had about um, a, about a person was either the stereotypical a stereotypical idea of an African American or a stereotypical idea of a Caribbean person who would come here as an immigrant. Either way was that. So there was that kind of stuff about being an immigrant. But as far as the ex- the things that f- stood out for me in terms of my experience as a Black woman in America that were new to me was that, you know, I had been a straight-A student all my life. Everyone had said, you will be, you do well in school." What I discovered, even when I went to graduate school, I discovered that the expectations of many of the people who had the authority to assign me to certain research opportunities or internship opportunities and things of that nature was really inhibited by their idea about what my capabilities were. So, for example... And this is such a vivid memory, and I guess it's still a painful memory to some extent. I remember that when I was working on my master's degree, and I'll be very careful to specify that because I went to a different school for my PhD and had a much more positive experience. But when I was working on my master's degree, these internships were really important. And I remember going through the same process applying. And the internship that was offered to me was to work at a fast food restaurant. It was going to be in a store, not in the corporate headquarters, and it was going to be some sort of an administrative role in support of the store manager. But the reality of it was it was basically just um, like an administrative assistant. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that job, and it would have been a wonderful opportunity for someone else. But for me, as a person about to graduate with this master's degree in IO psychology, where my colleagues were being offered opportunities uh, in federal government, in large corporations and so on, it was and it felt like an absolute act of exclusion. And I created my own, because of it, went and created my own internships I had to go and walk, and this was in Orlando, Florida. I met, I went knocking on doors until eventually I found two people who agree, who had the qualifications and who agreed that they would supervise my internships. To this day, those people are my friends, but they they enabled me to have the level of experience that I wanted to have. Otherwise, I would have been, um, I would have had a subpar experience,
1: and therefore harder to get into the next graduate program, yes. and harder to get the next job, and harder yes. and harder. Okay, have you ever had a conversation with the people assigning you roles? Do you have any understanding of what they were thinking at the time? I don't. i would be
2: honest with you. The way that I handled that was I I just would ask, you know, are you sure there isn't another one of those kinds of opportunities or, you know, what could I do differently? But the time was very limited, especially for the first one. The second internship, of course, I had already had that first experience and I knew what to do. The second one, I just said, you know what, I'm not going to play this game at all. I'll just go do it. But for the first one, I did ask a few very basic questions, but I hadn't been in the United States that long. I really was very clear that I didn't have a lot of power in the situation. And in fact, the way that I handled that is different than the way I handle those situations now, because... I did not ask a lot of questions. I kind of put my tail between my legs and said, Well, this is just the way it is. However, I did at least know that I shouldn't just give up. I should do something. And that was when I fo- followed this alternative route. That actually, that story, Wanda, might sound a little bit to you like what you hear nowadays when people say, You know, sometimes I just don't want to deal with this. I don't want to go back to the office, or I'm just going to go find another job. I'm not. It, people are today much more inclined to act in those situations in a way that removes themselves completely from the situation
1: right and it's hard to say what's the right one to go along mm-hmm. to build your own way to yes. quit go someplace else right. i mean it, it i think that's down to a choice for every individual in the circumstances mm-hmm. yes and there were fewer degrees of freedom, too, mm-hmm. at the time. I and mean, it also depends mm-hmm. on whether it's in a, it's a hot job market or not. That's you know, right. Whether there are plenty of other opportunities or not. Um, do you have any sense of whether that experience was unique to you? Like, is there something about your character? Or do you, have you talked to other people with very similar experiences?
2: Well, I have talked to many people with similar experiences, not at that university or in that program and so on. But the storyline is a very, very familiar storyline and you know for all of my professional career i mostly don't talk about these stories in fact i had to sort of dredge them up and remember them and think about how to tell them when i was working on this book because it was important for me to to really process it however uh most people that i know who talk about these stories with amongst people who look like them will share some details but very quickly try to move on and get to the next thing because Although it is possible to sort of litigate these things and tell people over and over what it happened, the truth is we have to be really careful. I feel like I have to be careful not to let that become part of who I am, right. my, my feelings about that. So I've heard these stories so innumerable times, but I try very hard and I encourage other people, don't focus so much on the bad thing that happened, really try to figure out what can you do to win <laughs> uh, regardless In spite of it.
1: I will just say among the people of color that I have worked closely with and that I have coached um, or have observed closely in any very combination of that, every single person I know has multiple stories that sound just like that. Not just one event in graduate school, but repeated events over the course of their careers Mm -hmm. and where they were not offered an opportunity that was equivalent to mm-hmm. someone who looked differently. And right. some of them are kind of astounding. And some of them I have witnessed close uh, close enough to see that there's no discredit. I mean, the story is just really one of flat out inappropriate treatment. I've seen yeah. it. Yeah, You know, but- asking somebody to jump through 15 more hoops because they're a person of color as opposed to a white calling.
2: Mm-hmm. But Wanda, you know, the really interesting thing about that, what you just said and what is completely consistent with my experience. Really interesting thing about that is nobody wants to hear it. When you tell the, a story like this or when you if you were to attempt to tell these stories, most of the time the reaction is you're being defensive, you're playing the race card, you're cre- you know, you're creating bad vibes and those that's the typical reaction. And so that's another thing that is important about this because when George Floyd was killed in May of 2020, Many people said they had not, they did not understand how bad things were. And that was accurate. They did not. What they also did not understand was why they didn't know how bad things were. And the reason many leaders didn't know how bad things were in their own organizations was because of the established norms of of the negative reactions from human resources and leaders when you would when you would ask for assistance, and so over time it's sort kind of transmitted through the ether. The best thing to do is just kind of keep your head low, do your job, and you know you'll figure it. You'll find a way through because the organization isn't going to help you.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. I certainly see that. I see ways in which we protect senior executives from some mm-hmm. of the stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. I see some ways in which we protect organizations from That's legal right. implications of something mm-hmm. that has happened. Right. I see that coming and going mm-hmm. in my own mm-hmm. work. Um, so there are reasons the stories aren't told up and just get buried. There are also things leaders can do about that one, but I'll come back. We'll come to that one in a moment yes. here. Um Last thing I want to ask is, so you've had these experiences, you know, many, 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 many colleagues who've had very similar experiences. I don't think it's a decade ago. I think it's as prevalent today as it ever was. But why did you decide to write about it now?
2: Well, I decided to write about it because... Frankly, I had been a fake, a fraud, and a phony. Is how I had come to to kind of think about myself after all of these decades of not only observing my own personal experiences, watching other people have these experiences, even in organizations in which I was consulting. So I would see these experience from the experiences from the employee perspective, my own experiences, and also from the perspective of employees in organizations that I was advising. And I had grown accustomed to the rec- to the expectation that no one wanted to hear it. Not just on my on that personal level we talked about, but I spent many many years doing employee opinion measurement. And one of the characteristics that was really consistent was that leaders of HR would do these huge surveys in some cases, and there would always be like a separate report that was carved out that they would call the DEI report. That data hardly ever made it to the C suite, so. And I knew that, and I knew that was wrong, but there was nothing I could really do about it. And so what I had gotten accustomed to, what I recognized was that I was part of the problem, or I felt like I was part of the problem, because I knew, I realized there were things I knew that I could share with leaders from an honest perspective, because I truly don't think they had heard these things before. And then the other reason I wanted to do it, unfortunately, was that in March of 2020, Brianna Taylor was killed, and, on, and this was a spring where we had a lot of negative headlines. So there was nothing necessarily new about this, but because she reminded me so much of my own daughter, uh, I mean, they didn't look alike, but something about her, her energy or something just really capturing my attention. I really said, well, if I don't do something to help now, when would I ever do it? And just as I was processing that on an emotional level, George Floyd was killed. And then I said, Gina, you, you really don't have a choice. I made it a decision I would say within a week that this was the time at which I would need to do something that was significant enough that I could say I was making a contribution. And so that's why I wanted to write a book.
1: Great. That makes, and to tell the stories and explain what the experience has been and so on. Um, It's fascinating. The book is absolutely fascinating because the notion of coming to the United States, or you could have done this in the UK or any number of other places as well, Mm -hmm. your case coming to the United States as an immigrant, Being treated as if you were not an immigrant, but yet Uh African-American, that had its own expectations and character and avatar, as you said, and then you had to go back scrambling to learn what was that avatar and what was that history and where was it coming from and why were you being treated this way? I think that's a unique perspective in this book. I just want to underline something you said too, that frequently organizations do know that their employee surveys, their massive employee surveys have differences by gender, by race, by various other differences but they choose not to share those up the food chain or with anybody in the organization. Now, I have a handful of clients who do, mm-hmm. but for the most part, they keep that buried yes. because they don't want anybody to know about it for some reasons I might understand, but at the same time, it makes it harder to really know what it is that's happening in an organization. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's dig into the solutions then, because I okay. think those are also really, really important. And you start, I'm sure a lot of people get frustrated with the acronyms. We keep <laughs> changing acronyms, we keep changing labels for each time a good reason, but after a while it does get frustrating because I feel like I've come back around on the same labels three times in my lifetime. But here we are, most people are saying DEI or IED, maybe they add um uh Something else in that, but you add R mm-hmm. R E D I. Why do you say that, and what does it mean? Well, the uh,
2: first of all, by law, one must have an acronym if you're going to write a business book. So I had to have an acronym. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, I wasn't looking to reinvent the wheel on that. I mean, I think the concepts of equity, diversity, and inclusion are well considered. Pretty people pretty much know what they mean. And so there, I, don't feel, I didn't feel there was any need to, to reinvent those. On the other hand, I felt very strongly that belonging never belonged in the equation <laughs> because um, what I knew from my personal experience and from talking to many people was that the concept of belonging, which was the newest idea that tended to be, at, to be added on to the EDI, what I knew about that already was that it wasn't well understood even by the employees it was meant to 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 help right and in particular i knew that black americans did not respond positively to that terminology because it had all the it harkened back to something about slavery and belonging to literally belonging as a as being owned um, the other thing about belonging is that it had this characteristic where it sounds like you really kind of have to fit in, you know, like to, you have to kind of figure out how to get in here and, and be comfortable. There are a lot of things about belonging then that I thought meant, suggested to me it was a, not a great idea, but nevertheless, that was not the only reason I, ch- I chose DR. I did some research in the summer of 2020 in preparation for my book. I spoke to approximately 30 business executives and I spoke to approximately 500, uh, and I interviewed, I'm sorry, I surveyed approximately 500 working Americans. And when I did the content analysis of of one of the open-ended questions in that survey, which basically asked employees, what is it that you would want your senior leaders to know about your experience at work um, with regard to these things that we call diversity and inclusion, you know, what What would you want them to know? And so as I content analyzed the responses to that question, one of the things, one of the themes, or one of the most significant things that popped out, especially then when I cut the data by race, was that the Black American respondents were saying very clearly that their perception is, first of all, the leaders had already told me That they weren't necessarily dealing directly with the DEI work and they were sort of avoiding it because, number one, they weren't sure it belonged on their plate. They were concerned that if they got too heavily involved in it, that some of their peer group members would reject them because, as we all know, not all senior leaders or even leaders at lower levels believe this is even a topic that should be discussed at work. And the third thing they said was, we really aren't even sure what it is that those who are meant to be the beneficiaries of these efforts really want. I already knew that from talking to leaders and they were very honest with me. So in the survey, when I content analyzed the answer to this question about what do you want executives to know, what I noticed was that Black Americans kept saying that they feel their managers and leaders were avoiding them, were avoiding the issue. And the way that that, and this was such a consistent theme that as I and the word disrespect came up often in those comments, disrespect. So as I thought about this more and more, and as I really looked at the data, what I recognized was that if you, as our leaders are doing a variety of things, whether it has to do with hiring for diversity, whether it has to do with um, you know funding programs externally that they think would make a difference, hiring chief diversity officers, and so on, they're often missing the outcome that matters most to the employees. And the outcome that mattered most based on this particular piece of research was a need to feel respected at work. Therefore, my acronym is what I call a RESPECT-first acronym because the R stands for respect. Great.
1: When you say, I think that's powerful, that uh black African Americans or black Americans are feeling that their leaders are avoiding them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: them personally, and avoiding the issue. That's those yes. are two very powerful statements. As well as they feel that they are not respected. In mm-hmm. fact, you use the word disrespected. Yes. Can you give me, can you unpack that a little bit? Because it's another one of those words, it's so easy to say, like trust. Mm-hmm. We all have respect and trust and, you know, it's not that simple. So yeah. give examples, illustrations, anything you can to help define that.
2: Sure. So first of all, in my, in my uh, work that I have been uh, really expanding upon over the last year and a half or so. Respect it has to do with has three components. It's got very three, three clear components that I think can be used as sort of a checklist to help you figure out does your environment meet the criterion or not. And those three characteristics are do I feel seen, do I feel heard, and do I feel valued? Those are three words we've heard before being seen has to do literally with this idea that when I show up, am I, am I acknowledged just for my humanity, just for being a person on this planet, just like every other person, there's a lot of evidence, including some very recent research published in the journal uh, of applied psychology that indicates that many black employees in particular do not even have that experience. So seen, heard is all about having space for my ideas, acknowledging my ideas, you know, giving me um, um, sort of giving the credit that I have ideas, all of that kind of stuff. And then valued is not just about being paid, but it is in particular about being recognized and being sort of checked in on so that you get a chance to understand who I really am. So that's what I mean by respect. It's a
1: great one. I feel seen, meaning people just notice when I show up, literally, and acknowledge me as a human being, as in good morning, how are you, glad you're here, the usual Uh, stuff. The
2: eye contact, all the nonverbals, all the ways. Yes.
1: Okay, great. Heard in that I have ideas, those ideas acknowledged, I get credit for those ideas, not somebody else, et cetera. And valued that I am recognized Mm -hmm. that people check in on me and get to know who I am. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, absolutely. Another element of herd that I will quickly mention is that herd is the thing that gives me the opportunity to get access to opportunities, mobility, and visibility. And absent those things, um, you know, and that's then manifested in 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 how I get paid and how I'm recognized and so on. These things are all obviously intercorrelated, interconnected. But the bottom line is, it makes me feel as if aha, I'm just that whole person here, and you see, and you you know, you're acknowledging all of that. Right, right. A whole person. I think we
1: all want that, period. Mm-hmm. Um, I've often said to senior leaders as they're looking at this issue of how to create a stronger culture within their team that they should do an audit. Where do you spend your unstructured time? Okay, so my contention is that the unstructured time, the informal chit chat. Mm -hmm. is where we really get to know people, what they're about, get a chance to give that idea, get to build some rapport, and they get to talk about an opportunity that might be coming up. So all of this is nice fuel for the eventual thing actually really happening. But in the absence of that informal time, it's really hard to build a relationship. So I ask leaders to do an audit. Where do you spend your informal time? When you've got five minutes, who do you talk to? And I think if you just do an audit of that, you're going to find that you're going to a handful of usual suspects and missing out a range of folks distributed out equally is my only advice. You agree or disagree with me, Gina? Oh, I absolutely agree with that. In fact, um,
2: it reminds me of a story where I was once working at a company that was doing, um, it was a financial services company acquiring another financial services company in another city. I was walking by the mailroom. I knew everybody and there were folks were laughing in the room and I said, what's going on? What's so funny? And they told me the story about how every day they get like 40 packages from FedEx coming from the company to be acquired and 40 packages going out from the acquiring company. So all of these packages are flying around during the due diligence phase of this deal. No, They said, how come no one can figure out maybe let's do an, an AM collection in the other location and the PM collection. And an AM collection here and a PM collection, we'd send maybe four packages a day at most. We'd save money. We wouldn't have all this paper flying around and getting lost. We'd have more control. And I said, that's great. Well, why did you know? Why aren't they doing it? And they said, because we haven't told them. And I said, well, why haven't you told anybody? Because they don't listen to us. Nobody wants to hear my ideas. Uh, it relates to what you said to the extent that if I were, when I give advice to top leaders about one simple thing that they could do, it relates to what you say, Wanda. that it's Yes, talk to your direct reports because there's a reason you have them, but make sure you're talking to people outside of that inner circle because the, 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 the variation that will provide you with the information that you need to process to get to a different re- a different action than the one you keep doing over and over on any subject is usually not going to come from people who have a vested interest in in maintaining the status quo.
1: Or they've already told you all the ideas they have and that, that, there's no new. Yes,
2: absolutely. So talk, if you really want to know about the experiences, do you, if you really want to know, for example, why you might have turnover among in the, uh, employees from traditionally underrepresented groups or why you're having difficulty attracting or hiring people from traditionally um, underrepresented groups, talk to the people in your organization who work directly in contact with the client who work in the jobs that are at the bottom of the pyramid in the organization, who are on the production line, who are the nurses or who are nurses aides providing the direct care, you have to get a mechanism directly to your customer, your patient, your, your whoever your client, whatever they're called, and that will really because those people Usually the lowest paid is where you're going to have the largest diversity if it even
1: exists. And that's how you really know what's going on. It's really going on. That's true. One of my favorite (laughs) CEOs says, you know, when it comes to making change, you sort of have to do it step by step and you want to tackle, you know, issues in a particular order. And he says, and if you don't know what to do, ask people, they have an uncanny way of telling you what needs to change. But he didn't mean ask your directs. He meant ask down in the organization. So same, same principle. But that's an uncommon behavior, by the way. It's not it, a common behavior. It is commonly stated. Yes, but not. It is yes. uncommonly practiced. Yes. And it's yes. funny for everybody who says we want a flat hierarchy or flat organization, the behavior is sort of the polar opposite. Yes. All right. So, Gina, last point, and then I want to take a break. Um, I wanted your general point of view. We've been talking about this in general. We've talked about the need for respect. We've talked about the need for reaching down at the lowest level in the organization and talking to people to listen to their ideas, to make them feel valued, respected, seen, heard. Um, And we've also talked about the fact that uh, my frustration, how many years have we been investing in this diversity and inclusion and equity, even agenda? The books, the programs, the um, tons of money. There is nothing else in business that we have put that much effort behind to show so little result. So what do you think is missing?
2: Well, first of all, I think the clock only started, I would restart the clock in 2020 because a lot of the work that was done before 2020 was never intended to solve this problem because up until 2020, very few organizations, I mean, the big ones like the IBMs and the JP Morgan chases and so on, big companies have established, has set expectations, at least in a general sense, in their cultural norms about how they want people to behave at work. and, And they tend to be more diverse than some, than smaller companies, in fact, in the United States. However, the, what has typically happened, even in those companies, is that diversity, equity, and inclusion has been handled as something in a box that you sort of set aside over here. It never should be touched by the C-suite because heaven forbid the C-suite would get their hands dirty with it. The folk who are hired to deal with it tend to have the physical characteristics that match the identities of the people who are meant to, to be the re- benefits of this work, but benef- beneficiaries of this work. And unfortunately, we're under-resourced, underpowered, you know, not given enough political clout, basically set up to fail. So the solutions that were generated in that environment tended to be, let's just do some ongoing training over and over and over again and insist that people do the training, do the check the box. Let's hire people and call them diversity and inclusion experts and, you know, let them sort of deal with this thing over to the side. But what was missing was there has not been consistently a strategic approach to this. There is no other problem that I have observed in the business environment where organizations have allocated either large or small amounts of money without, with, with the, without first defining a strategic intention. What is the, what are you solving for? And furthermore, put, failing to put the professionals in the organization Who are their strategic experts, their problem-solving experts, their implementation experts, their communication experts to address the problem? So the people who've been assigned to address these problems have not necessarily always had the skills that would be required to drive the kind of change that is necessary. There's all of that. And then the fundamental thing is really that the C-suite has not been involved. Because if you're if the C-suite is not involved, if the board of directors are not involved, the actions that are taken are not bad actions. They're just ineffective actions because there's no accountability built in. There's no you know measuring and all the things that we know could actually make the difference. And sometimes that has been intentional, frankly, Wanda. Because if the C-suite is involved, then of necessity, there has to be some accountability. And I don't think people have necessarily had their hearts in doing so.
1: Right. Or, or, you know, I know a few CEOs who haven't wanted to have their hands on it because they weren't convinced they would succeed at it and they don't want to be failing on that one. So, you know, let somebody else, all of those, all of the variations. Yes. I also think Gina, and I like your view on this one, That we've not stopped to say, what is the real problem? Yeah, yeah. And therefore, why are we having that problem? And then finally... What's the fix for that problem? Because otherwise we're just throwing stuff at it.
2: That's right. That's exactly what I mean when I say, what are we solving for? That's why we've got to have, in other words, what worked for company A might not be the solution you should implement in in company B. In fact, let's talk about company A and figure out what are your characteristics? First of all, what is your business strategy? What are you trying to, you know, what future are you trying to build? And then where does talent fit into that? And then specifically, what are the solutions that, what are the outcomes that you would desire to see a year from now or whatever time period that would then address these things that you're saying you want to drive in your business? And if you did that, you would quickly discover the advantages of having a diverse workforce, even if it were, even if you just talked about it from a profit perspective, even then. But if you talked about it from Innovation perspective, you would see other, you would also see benefits. If you talked about it from the perspective of customer experience, you would see benefits. I mean, all the business, all the outcomes that matter, you would see that this could is something that could help you with. But, you know, apart from all of the wonderful business outcomes, it is really important for leaders of organizations to say, do I, leader of organization, want to be thought of as an effective leader? Yes, of course I do. And then to answer this question, how could you be an effective leader if you're only effective at managing or leading 75% of your workforce because you do not understand, see, hear, or value the other 25, or at least they don't think you do? How could you consider yourself to be an effective leader? So either you are, you don't realize that in doing the thing that you have done, been doing to avoid this issue, that those who are waiting to see change our everyday say, well, you're not an effective leader, even though you think you are. I mean, all of these are reasons why you, you should be doing something. Go. should be doing something.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, totally should be doing something. All right. Perfect plot. I'm going to do one last comment. Very senior executive in financial services industry. 2007 is the date. His commentary is, look, this whole diversity problem. We weren't saying DEI then. We were saying diversity. Yeah. This whole diversity problem is a risk problem we know how to address risk problems. Why don't we treat it like any other risk problem we have in the organization? Which would mean you put a whole bunch of different people on the problem analysis. Now, he got laughed at. I think it was actually a very clever idea. I really think he was right. Because then you would put it in business operational terms. Absolutely. Then it would have worked. Anyway. Enough from my side. My guest today is Dr. Gina Cox. The book we're talking about is Leading Inclusion, Gina has held a number of internal corporate roles and a bunch of external leadership roles, specialist in doing organizational consulting, talent assessment, selection, acquisition, and as you heard early, lots of experience with massive employee data surveys over the years in addition to our PhD. When we come back, I want to talk about, so great, what do you do as a leader? And more importantly, what do you do if you're the CEO? We'll be right back.
0: Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.OutOfTheComfortZone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on OutOfTheComfortZone.com. We hope you'll join us.
0: Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you.
1: This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight.
0: If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Wanda.Wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back to the show. With me today is Dr. Gina Cox. The book we're talking about is Leading Inclusion. Um, the, what's interesting about this whole discussion is recognizing that we've been at this game of diversity, particularly, for quite a long time. The word inclusion and equity are relatively new additions. And I would argue, as would Gina argue, that the prize is won on the inclusion side. When people feel that respect that Gina articulated at the very beginning, they feel seen, they feel heard, they feel valued. That is when you're going to get your best performance out of them. And that's where that best performance is going to catalyze the impact of the team, the innovation of the team, the creativity of the team, the growth of the team, the ability to reach different customer segments, the ability to draw in friends and family. I mean, the, the numbers just keep compounding from there, but just the diversity alone isn't enough. And I think we've made a pretty strong, Gina has made a pretty strong case for this and about perhaps we haven't really been focusing on the right problem. We haven't really understood where the problem was and therefore haven't taken the actions that might lead to the greatest outcome. No disrespect for anybody who's been doing this work for the last 30 to 40 years, but it's clearly time for a change in the playbook. In my interest, my personal interest, Gina, is in getting leaders of teams to understand how to create a stronger, inclusive culture, one with respect on their teams so I get the experience of the manager being a really powerful one. So I'm going to start with that question, Gina. I'm going to give you a magic wand and get you to dictate to any leader, team leader out there anywhere, what should they be doing? You know, the answer to this question is so simple that every time I have to, every
2: time I say it, I say, well, it's very, also very doable you have got to start by understanding the individual members of your team. When the folks at work human did research after the pandemic, when people had gone home to uh, to remote work and hybrid work after having been in the office 100% of the time, and they were trying to identify what was the characteristic that made uh, accounted for the employees who were more engaged versus those who were not. So they talked to the employees and they, and they asked those questions and employees, basically what they concluded from the, from the data, was that the managers who checked in with their employees consistently were the ones whose teams reported that they were more satisfied with managers and more engaged. Okay, what does checking in with me mean? As if I were in that environment, it would simply mean um, that you would check in with some pattern that I could expect that I would be sure I would be hearing from you again. It wasn't a one-off and then I never saw you again. It was some regularity. It didn't have to be every Friday, but it had to have some regularity. And then it had to be sustained. You had to have done it enough times that after a while I could stop worrying about it because, oh, I know I'm going to hear from my man- manager. And I know when I talk to my manager, it also wasn't only going to be about the work or product. I know I'm going to hear from this person with some consistency and regularity, and they're going to talk about me some of the time. And when they talk about me, at first, I might not say much. The second time I might tell them my daughter's name. By the time we got to the 10th conversation, they might know that, you know, that I had a cousin I didn't like because my cousin was too tall. I mean, they would know because they'd given it some time to develop this relationship. That formula for engaging employees is universal. And it is also the formula that works for building inclusive work environments. Because you mentioned earlier this notion that what managers tend to do, and sometimes intentionally, and just sometimes out of habit, and sometimes out of convenience, is talk to the same people, the same few people, and then the rest of the team is just sort of there as like, oh, well, you know, they're bees. we're just doing the job. But Managers have to be what I call designated hitter leaders. You know, a designated hitter comes onto the field to hit the ball because there are other members of that team who are not as good at hitting balls. That's their So their job is to hit balls further and harder than anybody else on the team. What everybody recognizes is that probably there's only one designated hitter who can do that. But every single manager in an organization has to behave like that. You have to recognize there's no other person on the planet who is Gina's designated hitter. If you're my manager, if you don't do it, who else is going to do it? And every day I'm waiting for you to do it. And every day that you don't do it, I'm like, she doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about me. They don't know about me. I don't need to know about them. I'm going sort of further and further in this emotional thing. So designated hitters have do the th- the three Cs or you, use three behaviors that I call the three Cs you're curious <laughs> about me in the simplest way because curiosity is what is going to lead to connection so if you check in with me and all you do is tell that's not going to lead to any connection you might get your job done but I'm still not attuned to you and I'm still not in the, you know we're not in the thing together so be curious to build connection Connection is required to build comfort by third C, which I think we all desire to have in these interpersonal relationships at work. That's what inclusion really feels like. It feels like ah, inclusion feels like ease. Inclusion feels like comfort, like when you're home sitting on your favorite sofa and your socks are on your feet and you're wearing your soft, ugly pajamas. That's what it feels like. All the other stuff that feels awkward and like avoiding eye contact and, um, you know, having to make a big formal request to have 15 minutes of your time or like a manager I once had who had given me some clues early on by, for example, keeping me waiting in a hotel lobby for 20 minutes before he showed up for my very first interview with the company. That that was a flag and I chose to, you know, bury it. So that was how the relationship started. And then months, a few months before I left the company, I remember going to a holiday party. And that same individual, as I walked into the room, sort of saw me from a distance ac- across the room, but we, we weren't friends. So we didn't approach each other. But about 15 minutes later, came up to me and said, Gina, have you seen Robin tonight? That was the greeting. I'm like, no, I haven't seen Robin, sorry. <laughs> because everything that manager did communicated to me that he didn't see, hear, or value me, and furthermore, didn't really have any interest in me whatsoever. So we never could get to connection. We never could get to comfort. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the behaviors are necessary to build inclusion are not complicated. You do not have to learn new leadership behaviors. You have to use the behaviors you already know, but you only use with a chosen few,
1: with all of your employees. all employees. I like this notion of the designated hitter leader. You know that when somebody's working for you as a leader, you are their designated hitter and there's nobody else in the universe who can do it other than that leader. That's right. And the question is are you going to show up for that person as much as you show up for somebody else in the team? I think that's a really powerful question. I can't tell you how many times I get complaints about managers where the statement is my manager doesn't value me. And this comes in all walks of life. This is not just a people of color or a gender story. My manager doesn't value me. We don't have a good relationship. Why? They regularly cancel our one-to-ones. So you started at the very top that the simple thing for managers to do is to check in on a regular pattern, consistently sustained over time. And during that conversation, to ask some questions, to talk about me personally. Mm-hmm. So right. over time, it's a little bits, a little more the next time, a little more the third time. But the notion that you're going to sit down and have one deep conversation to know everything about me, uh-uh, Mm-mm. too scary. Not going to no. do that. I don't think anybody's going to do that for the most part. It's sustained. It's yeah.
2: practice. But one I do want to add one more thing. So everything that we're just talking about now applies to every single human employee. When the robots come, it might be different. They're here, by the way. Um, But what the data also shows is that managers tend to avoid approaching employees of color. So they have fewer interactions because they're uncomfortable. They've not gone through the process to get to the comfort and ease. So when their leaders say, well, you will have an inclusive organization, they almost don't know what to say or do. I once had a manager say to me, in all seriousness, after giving a talk uh, end of last year, he came up to me and he said, um, "I don't know how to manage the black woman on my team," because I had told him you can the team. I had told the group you can ask me anything; it's not nothing's going to offend me. So I talked about it more and more, and I said, "Well, what do you mean?" And ultimately, what I concluded was that he believed or had been taught that in order to manage a black woman, he needed to have some special bag of tricks, because black women require special leadership. And I talked to him. You know, and I said, you know, I am I, I, I wish I could say I was surprised by your question, but I admire your honesty about it because in reality, what the data shows is exactly that, that something inhibits you in general, meaning some managers, from approaching me. And so in in doing so, the problem that creates is number one, you never get to the comfort phase. The second thing is, I get less feedback from you. In fact, this manager said to me, I'm afraid to give this black woman feedback. And I said, why are you afraid to give her feedback? Well, I don't want anybody to think I'm racist. He said that to me. And, and this was a, he was being honest and, and, and sincere. And I was being honest with him. And I said, no, uh-huh, it's the opposite. When you don't give me feedback, and you don't approach me, that's when I'm wondering, are you racist? I'm not wondering, are you racist because you approached me and gave me feedback? So and and in fact, I'm not the racist thing doesn't even play into the conversation, but I was making the point, you know, you've gone way over here on something that's actually the opposite of what I'm thinking. The what I am thinking is, why aren't you approaching me? Why aren't you noticing me? Why aren't you, you know, talking to me? So what you've got to practice is just bit by bit getting a little bit closer. And that's what's going
1: to make the difference. Well, it comes back to that comfort. Yeah. Like when we can't get to the place where we're comfortable, then it's not scary to give somebody feedback because I know how they're going to take it. Or I have a grace to repair if I get it wrong. Or I understand why they said what they said or what their intention was behind it. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that gets filled in when there's comfort. Yes. We've got to get to the place of comfort if we're going to feel at all like we've got that we're valued in the workplace. I mean, I think that's just mandatory requirement there. Um I'm not surprised by your comment about this manager because I hear it all the time whether it's about race or it's about gender or it's about somebody who thinks differently or whatever it is from a different country nationality there are people are afraid of getting it wrong yeah. and therefore avoid because they're afraid of getting it wrong
2: That's right It's a normal human uh, emotional response and and but especially if you if you are a leader it is a non-negotiable that you must overcome that because you have to be a designated hitter. And right now you're not being a designated hitter. I know it, you know it. And yet you want to go home at the end of the day and feel good about yourself. I want to go home at the end of the day and feel good about myself. And the higher you are in the organization, the more important this becomes. Yes, you have to overcome the fear that you will make a mistake, CEO, (laughs) board member, manager on the front line, wherever you are. You have to overcome that because- It is evident to everybody that you are avoiding. And as I said before, I interpret that as disrespectful because if you cared about me, you would not avoid, if I told you my leg was broken and you cared about me, you would take me to the hospital. You wouldn't just walk by and pretend like my my leg wasn't broken, right? So behaving like there isn't a problem feels like that passerby on on the street in a big city who can't be bothered, you know, to look and show some concern.
1: Right, right. Um, Do you have like you got one minute to do this, Gina, for a manager who is feeling afraid of saying the wrong thing? What's your pitch? Yeah, Especially when it starts to asking the personal questions, because I want to get to know you.
2: Yeah, well, first of all, I don't think you can do that in a one big conversation. As Wanda said, this is a process over time. So you've got to be consistent and just start with the little things. But if you have, if you want to give me feedback, which is the thing I think really confounds a lot of people, if there is something that I should do differently, really get accustomed to saying, you know, Gina, I know you probably didn't realize it, but when so-and-so happened, I noticed that this was the reaction the team had. Or when so-and-so happened, the customer said so-and-so. Or when so-and-so happened, this colleague over here, I noticed that they did that thing. And as I was thinking about that, it occurred to me I wonder if you, if you, if there, if you think about maybe there's um, some alternative way, or would you mind if I gave you a suggestion? I mean, you have to practice that language and get accustomed to saying it. Because once you give me behavior and I recognize it, I can do something with that. And then once you give us the chance to collaboratively or even independently for me to come up with alternative behaviors, I can do that too. Um, but the key is you've got to start with the with the connection. Start with the curiosity. Get to just, um, just you know, talk to me. And the last thing I'll say, in the interest of time, Wanda, about this is, I once had a manager who, on Mother's Day, after I'd been with the company for about six months, sent out flowers um, on Mother's Day. But I didn't get any. So I saw other people with these flowers. I was like, where'd you get those flowers? Oh, they were Mother's Day. Oh, but I'm a mom. I didn't get any flowers. And when I asked my manager, my manager said, oh, I didn't know you were a mother. This really happened. But it's the essence of what we're talking about here, Wanda. If you don't talk to me, you won't know
1: all the silly little things that matter. And it's easy to know. Right, and this is not a personal invasion and tell me your no, life history. No. It's just, do you have children? Do you not have it's children? Just what being are your around hobbies? Me. What are your not hobbies? Yes, you know, is or- your weekend or not the weekend? All right, Gina, we could keep talking. We haven't even scratched the surface on what CEOs <laughs> need to smart. do, and you are not off the hook. So, <laughs> my guest today is Dr. Gina Cox. The book that we were talking about, are leading inclusion, inclusion, leading inclusion. I think the top takeaway from me on this one is the notion of respect. That you see every employee, that you hear or listen to every employee, and that you value every single employee. And you do that by having a regular check-in time that you consistently maintain and that I can count on regularly is going to happen over time. And in that conversation, you have to ask small questions about who I am as an employee. And that is what is going to build the comfort. And that is what is going to allow us to have the connections that we need to have. And have the right kind of working environment. Gina, thanks for being a guest today. If you like the episode today, please rate us on your favorite podcast provider and definitely join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.